Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Aisha Tyler. Tribe Call Quest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz, Seth Meyers. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim, and you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Talkhouse Podcast. I'm Josh Modell. Today we've got a lively conversation between two guys from different generations and geographical backgrounds, but some similar stories and experiences. Titus and Angelo Moore. Now, Angelo Moore is the legendary frontman of the legendary punk, funk, ska, soul, etc. band Fishbone, which has been a frequently mutating unit since 1979. Fishbone were peers and friends with a who's who of that era's Los Angeles scene, including Red Hot Chili Peppers, Jane's Addiction, and plenty of others, and they've been a huge influence on innumerable bands over the years. It hasn't been the straightest journey, and there's a pretty great documentary about the band that came out about 10 years ago called Everyday Sunshine, if you want to learn more about them. In addition to fronting that band, which still plays shows worldwide, Moore has embarked on tons of other projects over the years, releasing music both as Dr. Mad Vibe and with a group he calls The Brand New Step. Beyond that, he's been touring as a vocalist with a David Bowie tribute tour that's led by Todd Rundgren and Adrian Ballou. Now, Titus, a.k.a. Randolph Newman, was a fan of Fishbones, no surprise for a guy who loves to blend genres and who's a person of color in a scene that isn't known for a ton of diversity. Though they're from different generations, they share some life experience having grown up black in largely white areas and having ended up playing Warp Tour, though years apart. Titus' music is less a stew than Fishbones. His two most prominent ingredients are pop punk and hip-hop, with nods to titans of those genres like Taking Back Sunday and Lil Wayne. His latest release is an EP called Damned If I Do, and he also recently released a cover of Kate Bush's Stranger Things bolstered track Running Up That Hill, which is covered in this chat. Check out a little bit of the song, Saddest Song, from Damned If I Do, right here. In this conversation, Moore and Titus talk about their experiences on Warp Tour, their experiences growing up as outsiders, and drugs. Titus talks about the recent loss of his mother, which has understandably had a profound impact on him, and Moore talks about his days trying to kick some ass in the mosh pit. Enjoy. Damn, man, you got a bunch of crazy shit behind you. Yeah, it's like a little mural wall on me. Let me tell you what your wall reminds me of, dude. When I was on the road with Fishbone and we was going through Canada, I picked up this fine-ass African chick at the end of the show. <laughs> I went to her place because I thought I was going to get, you know, I thought I was going to get a piece. Yeah. And she was crazy drunk. And But when I went into her room, her whole wall looked like all of that behind you. Yeah. But it was all pictures of her. She passed out. She started snoring and she farted. I was like, wake up. She didn't hear anything. I went down to the kitchen and I got a picture of ice water and I went back up to the room and I threw it on her. <laughs> and she woke up like, <laughs> like that. And motherfucker, I ran out of there and went down and caught a taxi back to the tour bus. <laughs> I think the first red flag is that there were all pictures of her. There were all of her modeling pictures, right? All her modeling pictures. Which leads me to the video of yours I just saw. What's it called? Sick About You. Yeah. Yeah, man. Yep, I remember that. Yeah. Going through that, sitting up, waiting for a motherfucker that she don't even come around. You're like, hey, I'm out of here, man. Then you're thinking about her. Yeah. Then you go in the street and get hit by a car. 
I'm so happy you watched that. I put a lot of time in that. That's my actual girlfriend in that video. Oh, really? Yeah, that song is about when we met. And actually, that voicemail in the beginning is an actual voicemail mm. from 2014. It's the only voicemail on my phone from that year. That That's the night that we met. I wrote the song about her and I was like, damn, if I had a, like a voicemail to put in this, that would be fire. And I went through my phone and it was still there. And you took it and you put it in the song, huh? Yeah. I'm like a fiend for like nostalgia. You got to, that's why I have this. Like I, I like, I very much do everything based on like how it actually was. Like everything is factual in this entire timeline from the, what the song is about, from who's yeah. in the video, from how I felt when we met. And did she really leave you hanging at some point and that got on your nerves enough to the, to the point to where you had to write about it and manifest it into something real, huh? Uh, yeah, I mean, that, I didn't get hit by a car. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that's what you call artistic license, man, to where mm -hmm. you can embellish the reality just to put like a little exclamation point on something. We didn't have nothing that crazy, but we did have a few episodes like that. And I was just channeling that feeling of like miscall, call, miss connections, like, oh, I'm busy this day and you're free this day and we're just not going to see each other for a while. That's the way my life is going. Shit, it's kind of going like that right now. Because when you when you're on the road, and you're touring, you pretty much belong to everybody else. You kind of belong to your fans. You belong to yourself and your girl or your wife a little bit or your, or your kids. But, you know, you got the music, which takes you traveling, which takes you spreading your own form of gospel yeah. around the world. This is going to be like the first tour coming up that I'm really going to experience that. Because prior to this, I'd just been doing one-off shows and trips here and there. But, you know, outside of just like flying around the country to do like writing sessions and being away for like a couple of weeks. I haven't really toured in a while since like the, the very first tour that I did, you know, that was before I met her. So I didn't really have that same feeling of, you know, like distance. Sometimes it gets hard, you know, then that's when you got to get the plane ticket to fly them out. Maybe maybe bring them <laughs> on the bus or in the van sometime, you know, for about a week. You know, the fellas might complain, but you still got it there. And at least, you know, you, at least you know that it's real and she's actually a real person. That first tour that I did was, it was Warp Tour. Um, I think it was like 2012. Damn. And I had some local buzz and I knew a guy who like knew a vendor on Warp Tour. And I just like, me and my, my homie like got our friend who was, a, who was like our, you know, our high school friend, but also a drug dealer. He gave us like a bunch of cash to like, you know, get the merch and get the van. And we kind of like finessed our way onto that tour for like, I think it was maybe 10 cities just on the East and Coast. And when did you say 2012? Yeah, 2012. So this is like Taking Back Sunday. I think Real Big Fish might have been on there like Man, well, before that on, time. I was on about three warp tours and I had my own tent called Dr. Mavi's Medicine Cabinet. Nice. I remember I met Kevin Lyman. It was after some kind of party somewhere in LA. And I remember passing out at his house and waking up on his couch, man. Yeah, he was he was like a mythical creature kind of around that tour, you know? Like, he would just pop up at a stage or, like, you know, he'd be walking around doing his thing. Like, he was kind of, you know, he's the head honcho. Hey, man, it always blew my mind on how he put it all together. To take that setup to every city for, like, a whole summer, to me, is, man, is insane. 70, like, what was it like? It seemed like it was like a 75 or maybe a 75 tour bus fleet. I remember I've ruined all my merch on like the last city that we did. It just started raining. And I remember we were in the van, like just shooting the shit, like trying to figure out if they were going to do it or cancel it. And they're like, we're going to do it. So mm -hmm. everything was just like so. This reminds me of something that just happened to me just recently. So I've been on the David Bowie tour. Mm -hmm. Nice. And I've been singing David Bowie songs 
and I had to come back and do come back and do a fishbone show at the Palladium with uh, Cypress Hill. Right before my, uh, we left on our last show, which was at the Sony Music Hall, I'm packing up all my clothes, and I'm, I got two suitcases worth of stuff, right? And so I put my clothes in one, put my clothes in the other, and I set it up on the counter right next to, right next to the faucet. Okay. So after I finished packing up everything else, I came back to my suitcase, man, and my suitcase was full of water. Drenched. That's drenched. That's horrible. All my clothes, man. So I'm wringing that shit out, and I had to go find three or maybe four dryers in in the place, and put all my clothes in there and dry it out to at least to the point to where it was damp. Oh my god. Then I had to leave on a plane later on. It made my uh my luggage a lot a little bit heavier. Way heavier. Usually, yeah, on the, going on to the plane. Then you got like the the residue, you know, it's going to start smelling like damp clothes and Then you damp. got the residue in between checking it in between the the, the concert hall and then checking it in. <laughs> I was just lugging this big saggy fucking piece of luggage and some clothes in it, man. I know it's like it's like in purgatory. You know what? I'll tell you what. That a lot of those shirts I never like. I had for like ten years, and I found it like two years ago, and I was cleaning out this the house that I lived in, and uh, all those t shirts were still in there. And I was like, damn, yeah. I was like, damn. Remember these? Like, I I immediately started thinking about that that tour and what happened to those shirts. And I pulled out the shirts, and they still had the like the water mark, like the line. Water mark. That did you sell them? I still have them, dude. (laughs) <laughs> you need to sell that shit and be like, yo, these are the special shirts that never made it, but now they did. And it's got the special watermark on it. I know. <laughs> They're authentic. The watermarked original Warp Tour merch, like one of ones or one uh-huh. of whatever's. You know what I mean? Like you can't even get those anymore. I think I'm going to sign them too. I'm going to sign, sign all them. Of them. Sign them right on the watermark. That's time capsule value. <laughs> so where where you located at, man? I'm in Jersey. I, I was born and raised in, in Jersey, North Jersey, like probably 20 minutes outside of New York City. Oh. So I floated around throughout Jersey throughout my life. I'm in a little town called Little Ferry right now, which is right outside of Hackensack, which is the town most people know. I've heard of Hackensack before. I wonder if Hackensack has anything to do with the actual hacky sack ball that you kick with your feet. <laughs> It's funny because when that was like popular when I was younger, I used to always accidentally call it Hackensack because no one, like I never really knew what the formal name for that was because people have different ways of saying, you know, Hackensack, they say it faster, they say it slower. And I'd be like, what, is, what are you saying? So, and then you always wonder where the hell did that name come from? So that might be it, man. We were just close to where you were, man. You like David Bowie? Yeah, I do. Yeah. I, David Bowie's on this wall somewhere. I was going to ask you like who some of those people are. Okay, so that face directly behind you. The one looks like the brother, and he's got this yeah, one? yeah. Who is that? He's a newer artist uh, called Snot. His name is Snot. S N O T. Snot. That was the name of a band we toured with. Yeah. You remember the original Snot? Yeah, yeah. I can't. Sure. Yeah, I can't even remember some of the guys' names. But one of them guys, they passed away. We was on tour with them a lot. Wow, Snot. I gotta check out the new Snot and see what's up. Yeah, it's not. Hey, man, if there ever got any legal disputes, one of the dudes, he could always change his names to Booger. <laughs> Boogie. Who's the other one over there? This is Aretha Franklin. Right. Um, Where is David Bowie? I know he's on here because I remember cutting it out. Also, this wall is about a quarter of the size that it used to be. So when I originally made it, it was like 12 feet tall and like 12 feet wide. 
with all of the people that you got on there. Yeah, and then I ended up having to, I'm like, cause when I moved, I'm like, I'm not, I can't get rid of this. It took me like two days to make this. So right, I, cu- right. I, I ended up cutting it and like rolling it up in pieces. So some of the people that were on here are probably not on this. Oh, there he is. Let me see. There's Bowie. Ah, right up there in the corner. Who is the guy, who's the guy right there? That's Lil Nas X. Hold up, so this dude named Lil Uzi, Lil Uzi, yeah. Uzi's on here too. Nah, he just got this, 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 this fuck. What is it? A ruby or a diamond? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So Put in a, the middle of his forehead. He, what do you think about a, that? He had an emerald surgically placed on his forehead. And the first thing I, I thought when I saw that was I could never put a stone that heavy in the middle of my forehead. God like, damn. A, it looked painful, and B, I just didn't see, like, a neat, like, think about all the times you hit your head on shit by accident. Damn. And now you got a giant, hard-ass stone that's now worth you got a, a hard stone, so. It was like a million-dollar stone, at, like, or something like that, like, right here. I'm like, and he got it removed, so now there's a big scar he, there. Oh, no, dude, really? <laughs> yeah. Damn, I thought to myself. I thought it was the most ridiculous shit ever, but I'm like, I'm going to see if I could just go along with it, right? And I was like, well, at least he's enhancing his third eye yeah it's so that was the that was the reason why he did it right which i which i understood that yeah you know what i mean but yeah but after all of that don't take it out man and then didn't it fall out on the dance floor at a bus stop yeah. or something <laughs> i think it did fall out <laughs> shit is on the dance floor and the fucking billion dollar fucking ruby falls out of your forehead and you scrambling around motherfucker that, everybody's that, everybody stop i gotta find my shit that might have been the time, actually, where he probably decided, like, yo, I probably got to just, I got to just get this out. Damn. Yo, well, good luck, Uzi. Yeah. He's a character. <laughs> hey, this is Josh Modell, host of the Talk House podcast. We love it when musicians come on the show and talk about process, and often they'll get into the nuts and bolts of being a working artist, which can sometimes be fun and sometimes feel more like a business. Well, this episode of The Talk House is brought to you by DistroKid, which is an amazing service for musicians looking to get their songs out into the world in an incredibly smart and cost-effective way. For the past decade plus, DistroKid has made it easy to get your music on all the streaming services, including Spotify, Apple Music, TikTok, Instagram, and more. You keep 100% of your earnings minus a flat yearly fee, which is a better deal than you'll find anywhere else. They also make it easy to upload lyrics and metadata and to track your earnings and share them with your bandmates and co-writers. You can even snap on extras like Instant Share, which allows for easy collaboration. The DistroKid app makes it all a seamless experience that will save you a ton of time that would be better spent making music. The DistroKid app is now available on iOS. Head over to the App Store to download it. All bands and artists have jobs, right? Jobs they do like, others they don't. Times they're fucked up and they've had to face the boss with rosy cheeks and the tails between their legs. 101 Part-Time Jobs is the podcast where we hear those stories. I've had some killer guests on, like The Chisel, Chastity Belt, Real Estate, Kurt Vile, Mannequin Pussy, and so many more. If you subscribe to 101 Part-Time Jobs podcast, you'll be getting two episodes weekly. That's a promise. See you soon. Yeah, man. Well, you know what, dude? I was I was checking your music, man. 
I like how you got the trap mixed in with the hardcore. It's got the bubblegum vibe to it, so it's got that pop vibe to it. I like it. I like bubblegum shit as long as it's tasteful, man. It got, as long as it's still gritty, that gritty bubblegum. So I like, I'm, I'm digging it and I like the trap because then it's got the hip hop influence. You know what, that, that is, uh, that's basically just a mixture of all my influences throughout my life. I mean, I've made, personally, I've made so many genres of music and I've been influenced by so many genres of music. And I've had so many different influences where I was like genuinely obsessed with, with so many different artists and different types of music that now when I just sit down and make music, I don't feel like I have like a specific thing that I have to stick to. I'll take a punk song, you know, or have a pop punk melody and be like, all right, fuck it for the verse. We're just going to do trap. And I'm just do like a poppy, like melodic trap verse on this song. And I think it works. You know, maybe it doesn't. I don't really care if it does or it doesn't anymore. Right. Ah, you said you don't care if it does or doesn't anymore. Huh? <laughs> I really don't give a fuck anymore. Like there was a time where I was obsessed with like trying to trying to, you know, catch people's ears and stuff. And I, and honestly, I found that when I stopped giving a fuck about that, people started caring more. Yeah, man. I, 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 I'm the same way. I've had a lot of people in my ear years about it Yo, you need it, to do this. You need to be able to get on the radio and stuff like that. You need to change these lyrics. Uh, you know, the, the formula ain't going to work. I'm like, so then when you're under pressure, you got your band staring at you. You got your, you got your fucking uh, producer giving you pressure and you motherfuckers stop. Oh, you just holding up the goddamn show, Angelo. But you want to try this avant-garde idea that you got in your head. But the odds are against you, and so you're fighting against that. Sometimes you end up changing your lyrics. Man, I will never change my lyrics again. Mm-hmm. Never. Yeah. To me, that's truly selling out, and that, and I've I've gone through that a couple of times in my, so in my career. You know, changing lyrics because somebody else thinks that it's gonna get on the radio, or whatever, and it never gets on there any fucking way. And they're like, you, she would have stuck with your own idea. I, I completely feel that. I mean, that's, that is like the biggest thing for me is just making shit that's authentic to myself. Because at the end of the day, it's my happiness also that I'm wagering. So I like, I'll personally, the, the few times that I have done that, I never forgot. Every time I listen to that song, I'm like, fuck, I wish it was the way that I, that I had it. You know what I mean? I can't, you know, I'm not going to go re-release the song, but that's one of the things that is always in the back of my mind when I make stuff. A lot of those people who are very outspoken about what you should do with your art also don't know. A lot of the times people will be like, oh, will it sound more like a hit this way or sound more like a hit that way? And like a lot of the time, the records even that become hits are not songs that traditionally are likable from people even like you know what i mean it'll be a song that like someone just experimented or did something different on and then that became the popular thing that everyone was then telling their artists to do and you know what else man they don't realize that once you put this song out and it's out there i have to represent this song for the rest of my life for perpetuity right people forget like your song in the contract that says perpetuity that I never really paid attention to until I realized perpetuity meant forever. Yeah. <laughs> unless, of course, unless, of course, after 30 years you're still together, then you get a five-year window to get your master's back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the music business is very important, I, I think, for artists and new artists to, to learn ASAP. Man, I tell you, dude, I... Missed out on a big part of that in the beginning because my head was so into 
the art and the music. And I had so many distractions that I didn't even know were there of like learning what, what the technicalities were of the music business. I know a whole lot more now than I did then and I'm still learning. But I tell you, man, if you don't, uh, and I'm, I'm sure it's a lot, it's really different these days, man, because you can be your own record company easy on the internet. You can put your own shit out. You ain't got to worry about nothing else. Nobody else really controlling your shit because you can control your own stuff. I record everything on this laptop I'm talking to you on right now. Yeah, I do too, man. <laughs> I remember when these laptops didn't even exist. Yeah. I remember being Sony Studios in Hollywood with the big two inch tape real machine. And they would cut the tape with the, with the, with the razor blade to wow. edit something. They cut it with that and then they'd shorten it just a little bit. And then they'd put the tape over it and that's how they would make an edit. <sighs> and I remember seeing in the studio, all like the racks with all of the different effects up in the studio. Yeah. The Echoplex machine, the big box with the, with, the hallway with the with the reverb in it, like an actual real hallway you can walk down, and mm-hmm. a microphone at the end of that motherfucker recording the <laughs> reverb. And then there's a, then you open up the door, and there's a little elf running on the fucking conveyor belt behind it. <laughs> <laughs> Which reverb? Give me the long one. Yeah, give me the long one. Give me the short one. <laughs> but but like on a real though, <laughs> that's what I remember seeing. And then I remember seeing computers coming into the picture. Then I remember seeing cell phones coming into the picture and they were like as big as a brick. And then the cell phones got smaller and smaller. And a lot of the place where I first saw a lot of that shit was in Japan. Yeah, I went to Japan for the first time, uh, like a year, like a little, like maybe like two years ago. And I, the, the, the main thing for me was how crazy the technology was. It was like, it was like New York on steroids. It was like yeah. lights and t- crazy. T- I went. I Overload. walked into this to the Samsung store out there, and it was like they had this giant wall that you could like sp- spray paint with like a digital spray paint thing, and it would like be in real time, like you were painting. I was like, this city is got like this shit is wild, huh? So much technology that we don't even use here in it more advanced. Hey man, Japan is Tomorrowland. It is. It is. I love Japan. I can't wait to go back, to be honest. I was just there a little while ago with Fishbone, man. It was just like crazy hot over there. It kind of, you know, that some of the festivals <laughs> that we were on, it kind of reminded me a little bit of the Warp Tour, you know. Yeah. The ones in Osaka did. They had those kind of, they had them kind of bands over there in Osaka. Mm-hmm. But when we played Tokyo, we played with the Tokyo Sky Paradise Orchestra. You know about them cats? Are you hip to Bleach? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Bleach. Bleach is off the hook. Mm-hmm. I did a release over there called Sky Do A Sky Don't. <laughs> and uh, I re-released it in America with my coffee table book. And I got these I got these thumb drive cards that I, I put all the music in the card. And I put the card in the book. And I sell the book like that because I put the book together in Photoshop where I got all my pictures and lyrics to go with it and everything. There's a lot of value to that, too. I know we put a lot of emphasis on digital value, like NFTs and things like that. But... I mean, look at vinyls. People buying vinyls again. I grew up on vinyls and eight track. Mm-hmm. Then the cassette tapes came into the picture. Then the CDs came into the picture with them when the vinyls disappeared. But the one thing that's missing, it's missing the fidelity that, that a vinyl has. Yeah. You know, so now the vinyls are coming back into the picture. Everything's coming back, bro. When the cassettes are gonna come back. Disposable cameras are back. 
<laughs> Think about that. I have I personally have a high eight VHS VHS camcorder that I use. Um, and I make like skate DVDs because that's one of the things I grew up watching. And I discovered a lot of music through that. Too. You make what? I'll make skate videos. Oh, you skating? They're more like lyric videos, glorified lyric videos. But, uh, you know, I'll do a, we, we made skate edits when we were younger. So we would just all get together, skate, film the whole thing and like make an edit of everybody's nicest shit. Right. Put our favorite songs behind it. So that's like a little bit of, you know, my childhood really that I'm trying to bring back is just doing that again. And That's that nostalgia, man. Instead of doing it with the iPhone, I just do it with the, the thing we used to use, which is the Hi8 VHS camcorder. It's because people want to capture nostalgia, the roots. I've always had more security and trust in the roots rather than the top of the tree. Mm -hmm. So when it came to the pop culture in my life, I never really embraced it. I saw it there. It was nice to look at, but I, I never really found myself expressing myself too much within the pop culture, right. which represents the top of the tree where the fruits are that's overexposed that's exposed to the outside sunlight. Right. But when you go down underground where the roots are, it may be a little dirty down there, but the roots are are the sturdiest. They're holding up the tree and they actually spread wider than the tree is on the top. That's a good metaphor to look at it. I've always been uh more acclimated to the roots, man, with a lot of the punk rock culture and stuff. Learning about the bad brains and mm -hmm. living color and and all them and all them kind of people in the circle jerks and black flag and like descendants and the descendants and all those people all those the one thing that we all had in common we hated the police <laughs> yeah even though even though it was the majority white in 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 that culture even though, even though there was racism here and there my family we we lived in a predominantly white neighborhood. Same. Sometime I would get chased by the rednecks coming home off the bus, stupid shit like that. So I was like, well, I started to hate white people after a while because when that shit would happen, that, that would inspire my racism to bloom. Getting chased by a redneck or, or motherfuckers that's talking to some clan shit. And, you know, of course I had white friends in the valley and, and all that. I, you know, I, I had all that too. But there's yeah. always a Judas or an asshole in the picture or in somebody's culture somewhere. So that's what would happen. So when I would go to Hollywood or even New York or just whatever town we would we play, but even before we started touring, I would go into, go into Hollywood and I'd go to some of these punk clubs. Everybody had one thing in common. They hated the cops. <laughs> yeah. I'd be able to go into the mosh pit and I'd try to knock out as many white motherfuckers as I could. And, <laughs> and I remember... I remember they seemed to enjoy it, and I was like, <laughs> <laughs> because I was taking my angst out on on it because I was experiencing the racism in my neighborhood. So I go to Hollywood, I end up in the mosh pit, taking my aggressions out. Yeah, and that's who was there. But then I was still embraced by that because I guess the love hate factor, you know. And we all had one one common hatred, you know, which which inspired a lot of music, man. Fucking the Dead Kennedys. The list goes on, man. Anti-Nowhere League, Rudimentary Peni. I grew up in a small suburban town and I lived in like the black neighborhood of like a, a middle-class white town. We would hang out and play basketball and sometimes skate and just, we have barbecues and fish fries and shit. And that's mm -hmm. really the only time you would see the cops. So a lot of the times, you know, I would 
I would be the only one in the group that would get harassed or get, you know, asked questions or here and there. Like I'm the first one they go to when they pull up to a skate spot or, or then when I got my license and I started driving myself, I was the only one getting getting followed and getting pulled up every time, every single time I would drive. I was getting pulled over every single, to the point where I, I, I at one point had like anxiety every time I saw a cop like sitting on the side of the Driving road. Driving while like, black. Cause I'm like, I, as soon as I pass this guy, he's gonna pull out. I still feel a little bit of that like anxiety when I'm driving. I'm like, I tense up and I'm like, fuck, like, am I doing something? What, like, what am I doing? No, nah, man, you just black, that's all. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people, a lot of people still don't realize that that type of shit is still going on. And so every once in a while, I'm, I'll meet somebody and we'll, we'll start to talk about like race issues, you know, and talking about race issues is touchy because it's easy to take it personal if you can't talk about it as a phenomenon. A lot of non-minorities don't realize that that type of shit is still happening today. Even though yeah. you can turn on the news, you can look at shit that, that shit that happened to George Floyd and the other guy in the South that was running that got shot by these redneck dudes and stuff. You got all of this shit that's on the news that's happening. You got camera phones. Yeah. Oh, shit. <laughs> camera phones. I remember when it wasn't no camera phone. And sometimes you'll see people bring that up, too, in the in the conversation is like, like, oh, why is it all this stuff happening now? It's like the stuff was always happening. In fact, it was happening a lot more because there was just no one. You just want nobody there to film it. If you wanted to catch some dirt, it you can't just pull your phone out and press the button and bam and catch it right there. I call this the age of abbreviation. You got stuff like LOL and, <laughs> you know, all your text messages and stuff. The text messages, you ain't got to actually talk to a person. You just cut out all of the emotion. Also, if you want to film somebody, man, you ain't got to pick up the big clunky camera and put it on your shoulder and turn it on. No, you just, pick, you just, bam, and you, and you catching it. So when people were getting fucked up, back in the day and it was no cameras or somebody just so happened to have their camera running and they just turned it on, opened up their window and they saw Rodney King getting his ass kicked or some shit. Yeah. Or, you know what I'm saying? It's like, that's when I thought to myself, man, can't nobody really get away with shit now because they got camera phones. They got text messages. If you want to catch somebody in some shit, man, all you got to do is go on your, your text phone. thread and <laughs> see what this person wrote and be like, bam, here it is. You, oh, oh, you thought you said that? No, you said this. It's right here. Right. Yeah. A lot of receipts now. It was just like he said, she said, it would just be like who... You know, who who do you believe as far as like how people accounted what happened? Like the cop said this happened. Cop said he didn't punch you first. They got that shit on camera phone now. I wrote this song about that. I wrote a song about that shit. <laughs> it's going to be coming out with this band called The Big Old Nasty Get Down. And it's called When The Juice Ran Out. Nice. <laughs> Let me see if I got it, man. Hold up. Here it is. Okay, you ready? Yep. Okay, this is called The Age of Abbreviation, right? In the age of abbreviation, we all have so much to say. We got too much information, so we just abbreviate. Dots and lines, O's, X's, ampersands, brackets and quotes, all seemingly endless supply of storage space and volts. With an artificial intelligence, you push down your throat. Some addicted, some afflicted to the culture swing that's out. It's a life support for some people they cannot, they cannot do without. Imagine how it all go down if the juice ran out. Disconnection from the matrix and the world wide web, widespread panic, cyber meltdown, and the disconnected heads. 
S U L B F G F W T C M. See you later, boyfriend, girlfriend. What time you call me? M F M L R B T L S Y S. Fuck my life. Read between the lines. Save your selfie. Wow. L T. When the juice ran out, then you had to pray. When the juice ran out, you had to connect to the sky and the ground. When the juice ran out, we had to revert to smoke signals in a powwow. Mm. When the juice ran out, the eye in the sky had finally gone out. Wow. I like that. <laughs> I think about that too, that concept all the time. Like, you ever have like just your Wi-Fi cut out for like 10 minutes? Oh, yeah. Think about how like, I, personally, I feel like disconnected. Like, I feel stranded. Like, I can't do anything right now. And then multiply that by the power going out, and then multiply that by everyone's power going out. Then what? Then you got to do like your ancestors did. Grab the guitar. <laughs> Grab a guitar, put your ear to the ground, and hear that sound because there's a sound when you put your ear to the sound in the earth. Or the music is in the birds or the bees. I do wellness trips um, from time to time where I just get like a cabin in the woods mm. and I won't do like the social media, the cell phones and stuff like that because, you know, and sometimes I'll, you know, I'll do mushrooms and things like that. <laughs> it's a, it's a good way to, to recenter and, you know, reconnect myself. Sometimes I get a little too attached to what's happening in real time. To the matrix. What's happening. Yeah, for real. Yeah. That's just the way I reset. And, uh, I feel a lot better, you know, doing that. And I feel a lot more connected to the earth that way and nature and just have a better understanding of purpose. Sometimes people get so caught up in the in the money and the and the business and the this and the that and filling their schedule with shit to do. And they forget, like, there's people everywhere and there's love and there's, you know, people need to connect with each other. A lot of people don't unplug enough. I remember when there were phone booths, man. You go up to it, you put a dime in. And you use the rotary thing, and you rotor, you, you use the rotary phone. You put your finger in. Yeah, see, the, I, I was, I came in when there was like the pads. You know, you had the individual numbers, but before that, you had to go. Yep. And it's a crazy part because it's a rhythm to that shit, man. Mm-hmm. When you put your finger in and you turn it, and you let it go back, that could be like a drum beat or a sample or some shit, man. Hold on a second. Wait a minute. Tell me you got the rotary phone. I know you do. Oh, wait, right. I'm trying to put it close to you. Can you, yeah. you, can you. You can't hear that, can you? I can hear it, yeah. All right, man. That's what I was saying. If you end up putting down the same number. And then loop that, loop it. Right. Man, so hold up. You did a cover by Kate Bush, right? Yeah, running up that hill, which, by the way, is not a very orthodox song the original version in fact when i was trying to cover that song i was like the cadence that she says certain things is not like in a traditional way that i would think of saying that sentence right 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 and so i was like okay there's like its own art to that the way she wrote that song originally yeah you know like how the hook kind of comes in before i felt like it should have come in i was like that's cool to me well i like how you interpreted it man yeah i put a little i had to put a little screen vocal in there too you know kate bush would have never thought about that she, I would, but you know what it's good because you can like update it 
And I was listening to it and I'm like, okay, where's this song? Where's it going? It sounds familiar, but I can't really tell. And then when you came in with the actual melody, Ego Road we got. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was like, I'm like, oh, damn. And at first I thought it was Joni Mitchell. You know, they got the same kind of thing going on, but but Kate Bush, man, yeah. That's a good one. I always admire people's songwriting. I'm like a huge fan of the way people try to describe things you know and everyone's got their own language yeah and uh you know that song is like a really dramatic way to talk about loving someone so much that you wish you could take the pain from them like switching make a deal with god that we could swap our like take me and don't take them and that to me was like a super emo thing and i was like fuck this would sound good as a it's about sacrifice i tend to gravitate towards you know dramatic themes like that even in my own personal experience, you know, I, I, my mom passed in uh, April, and that was like pretty. I'm still grieving, you know. I, that was you like see your mom passed in April. Yeah, this year, um, which is still tough for me. You know, I, she was single black mom. She raised us. I was really close with her. Um, and your dad's still around. Yeah. You get along with your dad. Yeah, I get along with him, and it's you know it's changed it's changed our relationship too. But uh, I spent the majority of my time with her throughout my life and so like a lot of my influences I got from her she was always trying to show me different people and different music she was into and right you know like that's that's just one of the themes from that song that I I really felt you know because I was angry at first when that happened like you know she was like a devout Christian and you know she kind of raised us in the you know the Baptist church and all that and even though I went I went to have my own you know specific beliefs I still, you know, carry, like, actually, my name, Titus, kind of comes from that. It comes from the mixture. That's a book in the Bible. Right. And most people don't. I had a friend named Titus, man. (laughs) Fishbone had a friend named Titus that lived around the corner from from Fishbone's rehearsal space because we used to rehearse over there off of La Cienega and Cadillac in in L.A. His name was Titus Norris. Titus Norris ain't here no more, you know, but we would visit Titus. Titus would always have all the cool, funky music to listen to, you know. (laughs) Yeah, yeah he's, his feet smell real bad when we walk in the room, come home from school. <laughs> Titus would be there like, come on, let's go, man, because your feet smell funky, so we need to get out of here. He put on his shoes and we go. Damn. Titus had a Jerry Curl. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> Jerry Curl Titus. Jerry Curl Titus. Titus Norris, man. Well, you know, I was going to say, man, hang in there. Always keep your mom with you. Yeah. Close to your heart, spirit, your head, mind. I had an Aunt Jerry that just passed away, and she's got a, a funeral service coming up the day after this Fishbone gig with Cypress Hill. I'm kind of grieving over her because we went, I, I went to the hospital to see her pull the cord while she was on the runway. Mm-hmm. You know, like call on the runway before you take off, you know, you're on the runway. It was going to pull the tube out, disconnect her. She was supposed to take off that night. She didn't. Then the hospital called us the next night. And me and one of her sons went down there, Carlo. We went down to the hospital, Cedars 11, Cedars Sinai. And we got there probably like 15 minutes after she took off, man. Oh, man. But I wanted to get there and hold her hand on her last breath. I was able to do that with my dad when my dad passed away. So that, and then I had a cousin named Quincy Dewberry who just passed away from cracking fentanyl overdose, man. Yeah, and I lost a friend to... Uh... To that as well crazy right it's like it's like if you see a motherfucker doing that i just feel like i just want to like run from one end of the room to the other and just 
and just like with a flying kick to the fucking head and knock that shit out of their fucking hand. They might be free of the human condition, but they are sending their friends through pain because they want to detach and get so high. They want to get so high they can't even come down no more. That's a that's a concept I talk about a lot, too, with grief is that like dying is interesting because it only affects the people that are left. Yeah, that's what I always thought was weird about funerals and like funerals. You know, if I should go, don't I can't control it, but don't stand around and be sad for me, you know, because the funeral is really for the people that are left who have to do it without me. And that, you know, is where all the the grief and the sadness comes from, is that that hole, that feeling of emptiness that, yep. you know, that person used to fill is gone. That's why at this funeral service this Saturday, man, I'm going to try to make it the best party atmosphere that I can. That's why they call it a home going instead. That's why they call it a home going, huh? <laughs> yeah. Damn. Mm -hmm. I never heard it like that. That's pretty good. And, you know, we just got to keep it together and be thankful, man. Be thankful that we here. And we got to be really careful about the shit we put in our bodies, man, especially the drugs, because you got people out there. They don't give a fuck about nobody. They just want money. They don't give a fuck if you die. They don't care about your loved ones. Right. And that goes for food, too. Yeah. You know, a lot of the food, you got to be careful with what, what you eat, too. I know. I used to take mushrooms for a while, LSD, mushrooms. But after a while, man, you know, I think that the horrors of the music business kind of like started to make me have bad trips. Okay, I'm glad you said that because I, I'm, a, I'm a firm believer in A, things, all things in moderation, and two, uh, that it is a medicine as much as it is like an amplifier, right? So those things that you were feeling were things that you maybe always felt and, and you never, maybe necessarily... You know, they were Let it induced. come out, right. right. Yeah. And so sometimes when people have those trips, it's, it's that thing coming to the surface more so than it is the drug making you have that thing. But if you do th anything too much, you know, it, it, it will be bad for you. Yep. You know what I mean? You eat too much fast food, it's bad for you. Drink too much, it's bad for you. Man, thank God I haven't had a drink since 2020. I want to congratulate you on that. I'm trying to do the same thing. I've slowed down tremendously on my drinking for my health and for mainly for my emotional health. Hey, man, I got I got sober. I mean, I still smoke weed, so I guess you can call that jazz sober. I quit smoking. You were smoking cigarettes? I was smoking Black and Miles for a long time. Black and Miles? All my friends used to smoke cigarettes growing up. Black and, and Miles? And cigars. Good God, man. And I never, I was never the one to smoke cigarettes because I just never had the appeal of cigarettes. But then at a certain point, we were using cigars, you know, to roll blunts and things roll like that. Roll your blunts up, yeah, right. And then they would always have like a black and mild after for like the taste and that, that wine, black and mild, just the smell of it like slowly crept into my influence. And I started smoking those after smoking blunts and then eventually just started smoking them generally. And I did that for a couple, like for some years until I was like, yo, this shit is crushing my voice. Yeah, my right. Health. I can't smoke no blunts before I go singing. Right. I remember that day to this to this day. I, I, threw, I had just bought a brand new pack and I was like, what am I doing? And I threw the fucking pack out on the highway. Good. <laughs> and I never smoked another one. It is good, man, because cigarettes kill my uncle. They've killed my uncles, my aunts, grandma. Yeah, I've seen it too. And it's, you know. It's like, if you know that, then why would you, you know, why would you not at least take a, take an effort? Sometimes we got addictive personalities, man. And we got to, we got to do shit to talk ourselves out of it. And if we don't know how to use the right kind of language to talk ourselves out of some shit, 
Then you got to go to a shrink or a counselor or AA or rehab or some shit. Like, I done been to all that shit. Mm -hmm. I stopped drinking during the quarantine. I got a whole lot of work done during the quarantine, man. Thank God for me. In my in my studio, I got my drums, my organ, my piano, my saxophone. I got my theremin percussion. I got all my shit in here. But when everything got canceled in the quarantine and wasn't nowhere to go and nothing to do, at least I didn't have to be around the liquor yeah. that was in the clubs or some of the people that didn't really have my best interests at heart. And so that gave me a chance to like actually clean myself up you know, where I know a lot of people that, you know, they experienced some whole other shit. You know, they a lot of people drank a whole lot of whatever, man. I didn't have shit to drink. <laughs> <laughs> it was a weird, like, experiment, I feel like we did as a, as a civilization. Oh, man, it was like God shampooing the carpet, huh? Thanks for listening to the Talk House podcast, and thanks to Angela Moore and Titus for chatting. If you liked what you heard, please follow Talk House on your favorite podcasting platform and check out all we've got on offer at TalkHouse.com. This episode was produced by Myron Kaplan, and the TalkHouse theme is composed and performed by The Range. See you next time.